This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I hope you're well. This is the first podcast I've recorded since the riot at the Capitol, and I'm nowhere near close to sorting out what I think about what happened there and how I feel about it and how we got here and what's coming next. I think that's going to be the case for some time, so I'm kind of thinking through some of this stuff out loud on today's show with the help of some really smart guests. Uh, first up, I talked to the New York Times' Kevin Roos, who's an excellent chronicler of social media and its impact on its users and society. I'm sure you're already reading him if you listen to this podcast, but you should also check out his Rabbit Hole podcast. It's a sort of limited series he did about disinformation, primarily on YouTube, but really on the internet in general. Uh, today, Kevin and I talked about a column he wrote for The Times about the power that Twitter and Facebook and the rest of big tech have in our lives. We saw that illustrated by the deplatforming of sort of Donald Trump and Parler over the course of a couple of days. Uh, and Kevin and I talked about sort of what tech doesn't doesn't do with that power, what hope the rest of us have in, in changing that power that tech has, um, whether we want to change it, how we might reform it, how we might regulate it. Um, it's not an uplifting conversation, but it's it's useful, I think. And I've also brought back Ben Collins from NBC News to talk about the role specifically of QAnon in the Capitol riot. Um, I had been back, as I think many of you heard, uh, in the fall um, to talk about QAnon to help explain it. But I don't think we've fully reconciled how big this online cult is and how it's growing and how it's manifesting now in real life, which we saw. So again, not a super uplifting chat, but again, hopefully useful. Um, please tell me what you think about it uh, and who you'd like to hear come talk about this stuff in the near future. Okay, let's jump into our conversation with Kevin Roos. I'm here with Kevin Roos from the New York Times, columnist, podcaster, long overdue Recode Media guest. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Peter. I was just apologizing for not having you on years ago. Uh, and we'll have a longer chat, but I want to have a, a fairly focused conversation with you about the events of last week and kicking off with this column you wrote over the weekend. Um, I guess there's multiple titles for a, a, any any story online, but the one I saw was in pulling Trump's megaphone. It's a very timesy and headline. In pulling Trump's megaphone, Twitter shows where power now lies. Um, and I want to pull out what I think is the the key graph here before we let you talk. Uh, above all, Mr. Trump's muzzling provides a clarifying lesson in where power resides in our digital society, not just in the precedent of law or the checks and balances of government but in the ability to deny access to the platforms that shape our public discourse. That's a good paragraph. Um, and I think it neatly encapsulates this messy, kind of wild conversation we're having this week, should have been having for a long time, and I think we are going to have for a long time, which is what do we do about the fact that Twitter and Facebook and also YouTube are enormously powerful parts of our society and are basically unregulated? So let's let's start there with a light conversation. Yeah. I'll spoil it for the, the readers, listeners. Uh, but you don't really reach a conclusion in your column. Is that because I'm assuming it's because you don't have one? Well, I, I think our discussions around sort of online speech and moderation and platform power have been like sort of really impoverished for a, a long time. Um, and, and I think basically it's possible to hold two competing ideas in your head that A, these platforms have a ton of power and that should worry us. These are not elected officials. These are, you know, guys who live in California making decisions about the speech of 2 billion people. So that's strange and they, they maybe shouldn't have that much power. And B, that while they do have that power, 
it's their moral obligation to use it to prevent mass violence and the overthrow of American democracy. So I think a lot of people talking about this this week have had these kind of what seemed to me like simplistic ideas, like these platforms should not have this power. We should take this plat- this power away from them. And it was wrong to ban President Trump. And I think where I've come down is that both these things are true, that they were correct to do what they did, and that the fact that they have this power um, with basically no accountability and no oversight should worry us and should make us look harder for other models. And I want to talk to you about those models, but we can, we could, there's some easy stuff that we can dispense with, I think, because I think they're either said by people who don't know better or should know better, right? We're not talking about a technical First Amendment violation, right? These are private companies. They can do what they want. And it's also, I think, hard to argue that these people are, that Donald Trump and many other folks are truly being censored. They have the ability to speak widely. Uh, am I missing any nuance there? Right. I, I mean, no serious person thinks that Twitter and Facebook are legally obligated to give the president a platform. Um, these are private businesses, but I think it's also too glib to just say these are private businesses and not think about the fact that these are businesses that have hundreds of millions or in Facebook's case, billions of users. And that, you know, it actually is a pretty big impediment to the president's ability to speak freely. Um, you know, it's, he has a White House press corps. He he has, you know, all these outlets he can call into Fox News anytime he wants. But I don't think that's comforting him at this moment. I think he wants to be able to tweet, and it's probably really frustrating to him that he can't. Right, but he could he could give what we used to call speeches or comments, and those can be carried in part or in full on those same platforms, and that, that's happening today. He, he, he stood in front of helicopters and yelled stuff, uh, and you're able to see all that on Twitter, where I saw it today. Right, I think he's sort of a singular case in all of this. I mean, he is, for at least... A few more days, the president of the United States, um, he has a press corps that travels with him. He has the ability to sort of appear on uh, cable TV anytime he wants. So, so this is a guy who's in no danger of being censored um, in the sense of not having the ability to get his voice out there. But I think, you know, this obviously raises questions longer term about other world leaders, other people who maybe don't have the ability to... Um, you know, be amplified no matter where they talk, activists, um, you know, dissidents, people like that. So th- those conversations are real. And I think that the people saying, oh, this is a, you know, this is a private business, they can do whatever they want. I think that we actually do need to wrestle with the power that these platforms have over online speech, um, because it's not just, the, it's not the same as like your local restaurant booting someone in the sense that, you know, these platforms are are places where a lot of, you know, a, a, maybe a plurality or a majority of online speech is happening. Right. There's a, a Pew survey out today that says a third of Americans are getting their news from Facebook. That's uh, um, the most popular in that, in that survey. Um, had like 1% of them getting their news from uh, from Tumblr, which I found surprising. Um, it seems Even the third seems low to me. I mean... Yeah, I think it's people who told Pew that they were doing that, right? So it's, it's a poll. So w- what are you thinking about in terms of practical ways to grapple with this? Because... I'm at a loss, and I don't think that any of the regulation conversation we've had over the last couple of years addresses this idea at all, that these platforms are important conduits for speech, um, but are private conduits for speech, or private companies. Well, there's a lot of work that's been going on in this field going back you know, at least a decade. Um, 
Kate Klonick has you know great sort of foundational article um, about the sort of platform moderation debates. There's been lots of other books and papers written on this. So people much smarter than I am have have grappled with these questions. Um, but I, I think what I've learned in reviewing all of these um, all of this literature and talking to many of the people who have written it is that there's there's no simple solution, right? It's not to say you know. Um, this, you know, repealing section 230 is, is the sort of band-aid that's going to cure the online speech problems. I think it would actually create much more of what the right considers censorship and, and, um, just to, and, and just, you know, make them much angrier with the platforms. Right. And to um, sidebar that, the, the idea is if you repealed section 230, the platforms would be more responsible for what happens there. And they would, if you're on the left-ish side of this debate, you'd say, well, they'll, they'll go clean it up. Um, which seems not really practical and all sorts of unintended consequences like you were just mentioning, plus the conservatives aren't going to be happy with it. Uh, but that doesn't seem like it actually gets to what we're talking about. Right. But I, I, I do think that the, the tendency to sort of slippery slope this argument that banning Donald Trump is a gateway and that these companies are going to start censoring all kinds of speech from politicians they don't like, I think that is really overblown. I mean, having talked to a number of executives at these companies, the people who are in charge of making the decisions, they don't think of this in the same category as basically anything else. It is, And it's something that, frankly, we've never seen before. I mean, a sitting United States president inciting a violent riot on the U.S. Capitol um, through his largely through his social media accounts. That's not a situation that's like in the playbook. And I don't think that the decisions that they're making around Trump's account are likely to set much of a precedent just because I don't think we're going to have a situation like this again. Um, and so I think the people who are sort of using this as an opportunity to ride their hobby horse of uh, online censorship and worries about these platforms, I think they're, they're really um, conflating uh, acts of sort of speech with acts of violence. And, you know, there are clearly, um, you know, dangers in, in, in sort of violent incitement on a platform like this, especially when it's being carried out by the president of the United States. But you will have, and folks have pointed this out right away, right? You have the, you have the platforms that allowed Donald Trump to sort of rise, but he's now there's an entire ecosystem that will presumably live on past him. It seems like the platforms are fundamentally, uh, not comfortable sort of delving into individual tweets to individual Facebook posts um, and saying this is something we like, this is something we don't like. They, they seem to not want to do that at all. Um, and it doesn't seem like there's any sort of government answer to this. And this is already a very depressing conversation. But is there any sort of practical way out that you see for this this problem we have got ourselves into? Yeah, I don't think government regulation is going to be the answer here. I think I, I've come around to the position that actually the most important lever on these companies is social pressure, um, is pressure and 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 frankly workforce pressure from their own employees. So an underreported part of the Twitter banning Donald Trump decision was that the day before a group of hundreds of Twitter employees had basically sent a letter to Jack Dorsey, kind of making it clear that they, you know, didn't want to work at a, at a company that provided a platform for an insurrectionist mob. Employees at Facebook, you know, have been agitating for harsher um, punishments for Donald Trump for years. And these companies, you know, they live and die on their ability to recruit and retain top talent. And so I think the, 
the the social pressure on them um, from their peers, but also the pressure from under from the rank and file employees of their companies. And that's a large part of what drives them to make these decisions. Do you have a sense of, of sort of how um, sort of what moves a Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg? It's one thing to hear from a bunch of employees. Does it matter who the employees are or how many of them are? Does it, does it have to be from someone from the inner circle or if there is a large group of sort of, you know, bottom of the pyramid employees? Uh, is that also effective? I think it matters who they are. I mean, you know, frankly, I think it matters if they're you know, senior people, people with, you know, specialized knowledge, people who have been at the company a long time, who have sort of become trusted on a lot of these issues. Um, I think it does matter. I think when, I, I also think it matters who the outside critics are too. I mean, if it's, you know, people who they're used to taking criticism from, it doesn't resonate as much. Um, I, I heard a number of people at these companies actually talk about Michelle Obama as someone who had sort of, she released this I guess it was a Facebook post um, last week after the the insurrection at the Capitol, basically calling for the Silicon Valley companies to take more action against Donald Trump and ban him permanently. And I and I, I heard from a couple different people that that was something that I think moved the needle in a way that maybe criticism from you know me or you or some other person who's constantly harping on these companies um, maybe wouldn't register. So I, I think it matters who the critics are. Um, I think it matters internally who the employees are who are objecting, but obviously there's a, a numbers game too. I mean, you can't lose half your workforce um, over a protest about what you did with the president's account. So, so the the kind of practical solution I'm I'm searching for appears to be right now hope that the employees of these incredibly powerful private companies force the companies to reform themselves. I think that's a big piece of it. Um, I uh, I once had someone a source tell me that the the most powerful people in the tech industry are Stanford seniors because the ability to recruit. Um, from top colleges is a big part of, of what, you know, makes these companies successful. And we've seen already that some graduates and some colleges are not willing to work for Facebook or not willing to work for some of these other companies um, until they reform their practices. And that's a real risk to their business. Yeah, anecdotal I heard about Uber a couple of years ago, sort of at the nadir of, of that, um, where you could not, you could no longer get a, a promising uh, computer science graduate to go work at Uber, at least for a period. But look, again, I, and I don't want to say that this is all self-interested because I, you know, at the risk of sounding like I'm, you know, carrying water for, for these executives, I do think they care about their legacy and how they're perceived. I think a number of them, um, you know, including Mark Zuckerberg, have been very frank about, you know, they want their kids someday to feel like they did something good. And I think that presented with something like a mob at the Capitol, I think they saw a very clear kind of fork in the road for them. You know, do, do they want to be the kind of company, the kind of executive who allows this to happen on their platforms or do they not want to be? And ultimately, I think that in some cases it comes down to a judgment call about, you know, what you want to tell your kids and grandkids. We can't make the internet go away, but for, for purposes of, of the thought exercise, if Twitter and Facebook and YouTube went away, are we better off or worse off? Are we better off having centralized structures that are built for growth, that are built for, you know, frictionless distribution versus sort of just stuff accumulating in weird corners of the internet where maybe we can't see it? 
It's a good question. It's something I've thought about a lot. I mean, the argument is, you know, if you break up Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, then, you know, five smaller things replace it. And maybe they don't have the same AI detection systems or capabilities. Maybe they're not run by people who particularly care about removing violent incitement from the internet. Maybe it's just, you know, a bunch of gabs. And, and It's a and, guy in the Philippines running 8-Gun, right? Exactly. So, so I think this is a real question. And I think you have to evaluate it on two questions. One is the, the sort of contagion effect. How likely are people on a given platform who don't go looking for extremist content, how likely are they to be exposed to it anyway through sort of algorithms, recommendations, suggested pages and groups? Um, And then there's the question of sort of the hardened extremists, the people who are already part of extremist movements and, and sort of what their community dynamics are. So I think the upside of having lots of little social networks would be that the damage in some ways could be contained. You could say, okay, these are the bad networks where the, you know, the, the, the violence and the hate speech and the incitement is going on, and we can sort of deal with those. But they're not likely to kind of jump the fence to these other social networks and sort of contaminate discourse. That's, there. that's the bad part of town. Don't go there. Don't go to that club. Exactly. An and, I, yeah. and I think, you know, this sort of federated model is something that I, I think we haven't you know, really probed yet. Um, the, the example that I'll, that I tend to use is, is Reddit. I mean, Reddit has notoriously, um, had problems with moderation and hate speech and all kinds of garbage. Um, but it, it was able to kind of contain because the structure of Reddit is sort of this network of mini networks. It, it, those, that bad behavior was largely contained to those subreddits. And when they decided to nuke those, it wasn't like they had to go cleaning up their entire, you know, history subreddits didn't become infected with, you know, stuff about uh, QAnon. It was like they were separate parts of Reddit. And so you could deal with the problem in one part because it hadn't yet spread everywhere. So I think that's the upside of having lots of little social networks that don't have billions of users is that you're less likely to encounter this kind of, you know, like poison in the water effect. Right. And to be clear, none of the sort of proposals we've seen about breaking up Facebook, for instance, address that, right? So if you break up Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp into three different things, there's still huge things with all the same sort of structural problems. Um, While I have you here, I want to talk to you about YouTube, in part because you're an expert on YouTube and you have excellent podcasts. Is it The Rabbit Hole? Am I getting the title right? Just rabbit hole, no the. Rabbit hole, no the. I screwed up eventually. Uh, which which specializes in, in talking about disinformation and, and the rabbit hole of YouTube. Uh, and also because I think it's been undercovered in this conversation. So first of all, can you sort of spell out what role you think YouTube has had in getting us to where we got last week? Um, I think from you know a couple of years of reporting on this now and, and having talked to a number of people who end up in these extremist movements, I think YouTube has been a major force in sort of providing an on-ramp to extremist ideology for a lot of people. And a lot of the way that happens is through their recommendation algorithm, which is I mean, people don't really understand the extent to which like the recommendation algorithm is YouTube. Like it's it's responsible for more than 70% of all the time that people spend on YouTube. You go to and YouTube so, to find something and then it tells you to find something else and that's and then now you're down. Which by yeah, the way is the same as TikTok, right? Except you don't tell TikTok you want something. Right. So so this algorithm is enormously powerful and it's been through a lot of evolution over the years, but what I was really focused on in Rabbit Hole was this this sort of period between sort of 2012 and kind of 2018. Um, and 
the, the YouTube algorithm in that period, um, the, the guy that I reported on, this guy named Caleb Kane, who was a 26-year-old guy from West Virginia who sort of got drawn into a rabbit hole of uh, conspiracy theories, of videos that were, you know, sending him down these sort of paths to extremists that were introducing him to this world of influencers who had popped up on YouTube. And I, I've since, you know, since the podcast came out, I've heard from hundreds, thousands, tons and tons of people who say, you know, this happened to my brother, this happened to my friend, this happened to my mom. I think YouTube has been a major accelerant and driver of, um, of energy toward these large extremist movements. And I think it's, um, I think it's a big problem. I think it's one that they're, they're trying to deal with, but I think it, you know, in some ways it's, it's too late. Is it any different fundamentally than, than Twitter and Facebook in terms of giving you more, it's, it's, it's set up for engagement. It wants you to be engaged. It will surface things to you that it think you want, that you want to look at. It's very hard for them to moderate because it's big and, and scaled. Um, is there, is there any, anything that's different about those two or just the amount of it? It's, it or, is there something different about it? I guess is my shorter question. There's there's less different about it now than it used to be. I mean, YouTube really pioneered the sort of AI-driven recommendation. That was kind of their big innovation. Um, they sort of made huge advances in that. They have the best engineers, and they you know they have all the all the AI talent in the world there, and so they sort of pioneered the use of AI to sort of. Uh, to sort of make these recommendations more accurate, to get people to spend more time on YouTube. So I wouldn't say it's, YouTube obviously is, is a different platform. I mean, it's not a messaging platform, it's a broadcast platform. And so that happens, you know, that, that means that people are not, you know, it's not like Twitter where people might be, you know, sending you know, 20 messages an hour with someone. It's, it's more like these communities that form around these influencers. People like, you know, Alex Jones, before he got banned, you know, all kinds of alt-right figures had sort of these communities that were all intertwined. And um, and that's sort of what had the radicalizing effect was the combination of the algorithm and the way that the influencers kind of hacked the algorithm to get bigger distribution. So you and I know that YouTube's a big deal and very important. Why do you think it has escaped the scrutiny and, and beating and criticism that Twitter and Facebook have got have gotten? I have, I have a theory, but I want to hear yours. No, I want to hear your theory too, because I, I, well, I'll, I'll give my theory and then, yeah. and then you can give your theory. I mean, my theory is that um, journalists don't spend enough time on YouTube. Ding, yes. <laughs> and, and 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 normal people, right? Like, I mean, normal people certainly do, but it's it's it skews very. There's a part of it that skews very young. And I think it's for a lot of people, it's not baked into their sort of standard way they consume information. Um, and also, I think practically sort of pointing out something that's bad on YouTube is harder to do, right? If it's a beheading video, that's pretty straightforward. But if it's a, if it's a gamer video where the guy's steadily dropping in weird sort of red pill stuff at, while he talks, it's not evident sort of what the outrage is and why something's bad. Totally. And it's also a, a personalized platform. So your YouTube homepage and my YouTube homepage probably look nothing alike. Um, you know, I think a lot of people who might be worried about YouTube might log on and say, like, what's the big problem here? It's all knitting videos and, you know, food uh, recipe, you know, videos. And like, what's the what's the big issue here? But if you one thing that I, I really was excited to be able to do for Rabbit Hole was to actually go through this. This guy, Caleb Kane, sent me his whole YouTube history, which was like 12,000 videos spanning four years. And so I was able to actually like see 
the YouTube world from his perspective and kind of retrace his step down the rabbit hole. And that was enormously valuable because it taught me that, A, his experience of YouTube is totally different than than mine. And I, and I think it really lends some insight into how this actually happens, what the rabbit, you know, what the steps are along the way, who you get introduced to, and kind of what the the forces are that are drawing you into these extremist worldviews. Uh, it's been a lousy week. Uh, can you can you give me any bit of, of hope or uh, uplift or thought that maybe something gets better in in either the short, medium, or long term? Uh, have you seen the sea shanties on TikTok? No. They're very good. Okay. TikTok is really into sea shanties right now, and they're making some great videos. I, I can say pretty honestly that is like the only thing that has brought me joy this week on the internet. Um, but I, I think that we, to the extent that there's an upside to this, obviously what happened at the Capitol was a horrible tragedy. Um, I think we're probably in for more violence, unfortunately. Um, and, and we have this really big extremism problem to deal with now. Um, I think it's good that people are paying attention to it now. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, it felt like only counterterrorism people, disinformation reporters, and sort of platform trust and safety teams were seeing this stuff. And now at least we're having a bigger national conversation about it. Yeah, and that is something I think about a lot, which is I think for years I took a comfort, which turned out to be a false comfort in the idea that bad people on the internet were bad people on the internet and they didn't really venture out beyond their computers. And over the last four or five years, which may or may not have to do with with our president, um, they started showing up in synagogues and temples and mosques and shooting people and performing for online. And then you get to last week, right, where it's a very online mob in real life. And I think it is now uh, impossible to ignore that. So yes, let's let's take some sad solace in that. All right, that's a bummer of an interview, uh, Kevin, but I'm glad you came on. Thank you. Next time, we'll just talk about sea shanties, I promise. All right. You, you know where to find Kevin Roos. We'll have him on for a longer conversation about sea shanties and more. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Peter. Thanks again to Kevin Roos for joining us. We're going to hear from a sponsor, and then we'll hear from Ben Collins from NBC News. I'm here with Ben Collins from NBC News. Uh, ben, welcome back. I'm glad to see you and also disappointed because we saw you relatively recently. You explained QAnon to our audience. Uh, I think it's one of the better performing podcasts of the last year and really eye-opening. And we're having you back to talk about QAnon and the events of last week and how we got there. So first of all, welcome. Yeah, thank you, I, I guess. Yeah. Well, let's. so um, you, are, you are very well positioned to sort of explain at least part of what happened last week. Um, so let's just start here. How much of what happened at the riots at the Capitol was a QAnon event versus QAnon and a bunch of other stuff? It was QAnon and a bunch of other stuff, but the information pipeline that led to uh, the problems uh, that the president was talking about beforehand, and then a lot of the people who showed up there was was a QAnon thing. Um, you know, I, I want to take a step back and sort of outline the month before what happened there. Yeah, and before you do that, I just want to suggest yeah. to people uh, who are interested enough to be listening to this podcast to go Google you and to look at the output um, under go, go nbcnews.com slash pages slash author slash Ben dash Collins. Google will get you there faster than that. Um, and they can see what you've been writing through the fall. And it, it, it it's pretty terrifying to read in retrospect. It's like watching a monster movie or something and, and where you know what's going to happen. But you, you, you tell it in your own words. Yeah, you, you can sort of start to see this symbiosis between um, President Trump, his media ecosystem, and the QAnon community. High-level, high high-profile high QAnon influencers pushing their talking points to the president in 
like in the Oval Office, like in the White House. So um, we should you know, back up one more step. When we talked in the summer, QAnon was a big deal. And it looked like at the time, this is sort of bubbled up kind of organically from the internet. And this was something that was coalesced around the president that he didn't start, but he seemed to sort of welcome because he likes anyone who like supported him and, and, and wanted their votes. And then I think since we talked, you could sort of see him sort of start encouraging QAnon with sort of uh, shout outs to them periodically. And then it ramped up over the fall. So now you can start to tell. Yeah, exactly. Happened. Yeah. I, I forgot how long it's been. Yeah. You know, I think since we talked, the, the president was asked to denounce QAnon and he refused to do it repeatedly. He said, that, you know, these people like me, you know, why why would I denounce it, basically? Right. And one then, was on national TV in, in one of the debates or an interview. Yeah. You know, he, he basically said, you know, these are good Americans that, you know, care about, you know, pedophilia and stuff. So, like, why would I why would I hate them? Turns out that's not what was happening, obviously. Um, so, you know, in the in the last month, basically, as QAnon started to go away, basically, after the election, there have been three posts by Q, the central figure of QAnon, who is this false prophet, claims to be a government insider tied to Donald Trump. And that's it. Usually there's a bunch a day. And after the election, there's been three total. And, you know, you might think like, okay, that's good news. It's going away. But really all the influencers and the people in the QAnon community just got closer to the president and they sort of took the branding off it. So they started focusing on this thing called the Dominion Conspiracy, where, you know. So they they moved on from this is a pedophilia ring to this is an election rigging uh, conspiracy. Exactly right. So all those influencers started talking about how Dominion voting systems is actually secretly run by Hugo Chavez, who's been dead for seven years, and the Venezuelan government, and they have rigged the election. And then they said it was the Italians. It was all this like, ridiculous stuff. Because and these are all they, these are all claims amplified by the president's lawyers uh, and, and representatives. And are they are they inhaling QAnon, or is QAnon um, mirroring them, or is it it's sort of a circular loop? It's a circular loop. For example, Mike Flynn, former national security advisor, pardoned by the president recently, um, he took an oath to QAnon uh, last year. Um, Sidney Powell, her whole thing is about the storm, which is this event which may have happened almost on Wednesday, where prominent Democrats are rounded up and executed in public. She talks about the storm all the time. Her profile picture on Twitter was a reference to the storm. And these people were in the White House with Donald Trump in December talking about his paths out to create a second term for himself where there were no legal options. Um, you know, there, the paths out involved intimidation and telling Mike Pence to, you know, uh, decertify the election and you know, overturn the electors. And uh, people close to the president were like, don't, you know, don't listen to these kooks. But he did. He listened to these people. And then, you know, in the weeks before this this riot, those people really ramped it up. They started focusing explicitly on January 6th. And that's how we got to this moment. And and this stuff was out in public. You were reporting on it. Other people are, are, are reporting on it. You could see it on Facebook posts, et cetera, uh, on YouTube. There's now a whole series of, there's a discussion about why why didn't anyone see this coming? Why didn't agencies see this coming? It was clearly visible because you were typing it on NBCnews.com. That said, and, and when we talked this summer, I was trying to play devil's advocate and saying, well, who cares if people are delusional online, um, if, if they're not doing much in the real world? And there were a handful of examples of, of people behaving badly or, and or killing people. 
And you said, no, no, this is a real problem. They do exist in the real world. Did you expect to see as many people sort of organized under a QAnon flag um, in Washington last week? Or did you think, or, or, or did you know it was coming? Um, I was really worried. Um, for the first time since Charlottesville, I've been on speed for a while now. And for the first time since Charlottesville, I knew something was going to happen the next day. I did, I did. I couldn't tell you exactly what was going to happen, but they kept saying they were going to storm the Capitol. That that means I didn't know they were going to be quite so literal, but they kept saying they were going to storm the Capitol, occupy the Capitol. Um, and some people were really violent. Some people on these forums were making explicit threats and saying, who do we kill? Do we kill cops? Do we kill security guards? Are people going to hate us if we kill security guards? Who exactly should we kill when we storm the Capitol tomorrow? But again, you can you yeah. can say all kinds of things right. uh, on the internet, right? And and there's versions of this with with um, you know Al Qaeda uh, sympathizers. Uh, they'll say all sorts of things online, and very few of them do it. Do you think they expected to be able to storm the Capitol, or do you think their plan was to sort of show up and there'd be guards and they'd go home? I think that there were a combination of people there. Um, I think that there were people who were explicitly there. Um, to just support the president. They thought this was a last hurrah. And they were there, like, the, if you look at the video of it, the archive video, there are people there with strollers. There were families there. But then there were people who went into this thinking that this was the day they were going to take over the government. Some of those people were QAnon people. Some of those people were militiamen who are okay with QAnon people. Um, you know, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers in the last couple of years have been really big tent about their plans. they they are militias that are trying to create a permanent Trump government to protect the president. And, you know, they will take in QAnon people. The issue is when you get QAnon people in the Capitol and QAnon people have been saying for years that there is an upcoming judgment day called the storm or the great awakening where all of these people who are feet away from them need to be rounded up and sent to the gallows. And they meant they made gallows outside of the Capitol the issue is what happens when they're face to face with these people. And we almost saw that. And when all this stuff was happening on Wednesday, I called my colleague, Brandy Zdrozny, who covers what I cover. And we just, we really did. We just sat there in silence because although this was streaming live on television, I knew that we might have seen truly the worst thing in American history. We were, seconds away from seeing something a lot worse than what we saw on Wednesday. Right. And I think initially uh, everyone was astonished by those images. And I think a lot of people, though, thought, oh, these, and in part because of the images we initially saw of guys in Viking hats uh, and the woman who had been, was crying because she was maced. Right. Um, and, and there's a lot of folks who look uh, harmless or maybe they mean harm but aren't capable of creating harm. Uh, a, a very weird mix, and I, but I think that's part of QAnon, right? I think a lot of the people who are involved in it do look, quote, normal, right? I, um, I was watching Tucker Carlson the, the, the night of the riots, and he started off his monologue talking about uh, the woman who had been killed, who we now know is named Ashley Babbitt, and he was saying, she looked normal. She looked like your daughter. She didn't look like an Antifa person, a crazy person. And then her, his idea was to generate sympathy. Turns out she was a QAnon inherent, like I just said. Um, but it seems like that's, that's kind of a, a defining feature of QAnon, is that it, it sucks up lots of regular people. Yeah, and she was a QAnon adherent since February. It doesn't take very long 
to get people sucked into this mess. And we've seen, we talked about this last time, remember? How we were saying all these people in the pandemic who had nothing to do may have fallen into this trap. Yeah, and, I, I was thinking yeah. a lot about the fact that I asked you why is QAnon taking off and you said the pandemic. Um, and you said just what you said now, that they're spending all this time online and they go down this rabbit hole. And since last week, I've also been thinking about the fact that when you read interviews with people who went to the Capitol or read about their life story, whether or not they're QAnon adherents, it often, they often bring up COVID. Um, and not just they're spending time online, but they're upset about the lockdown or, again, Ashley Babbitt's business was failing and she blamed that on on COVID. It seems like it's not just being online, it's the events of the last nine or ten months when people found themselves sort of locked down or, or economically struggling that sort of accelerated this. Yeah, it's the shock of all of this happening. And with, with Q specifically, um, if... Trump remains president. You can keep that lie up. You can keep that going. Uh, you can say that this is all a big joke. This is all a big, you know, COVID isn't real. Um, the president has all the answers. We're going to get through this together. And like we were saying this whole time for years and years, he has a secret plan anyway. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. Just trust all of this. But this was collapsing on upon them. You know, this is one of the last days this could happen. And like what struck me watching it in real time was watching the march, watching the rally in real time before the storming of the Capitol. Was I was wa- monitoring those those dark places where where Q people go and militias go, and they were like, "What's going on here? Like, we were supposed to get all the answers today. We were supposed to like the president was supposed to tell us what to do, um, and he's complaining about Oprah. Like, what's what's going on? So they were trying to find anything in his speech that would be marching orders. And then he said, go to the Capitol after this. And uh, that that's what was obviously deduced as marching orders by people who were desperate for some, you know, some end game here. Yeah. And even his, even his uh, uh, forced conciliatory uh, statement that he put out, I think a day after uh, I saw online people saying, you have to read, very, you have to watch very carefully, listen very carefully to what he's saying because there's messages encoded there. So what happens to QAnon now? Trump has been kind of deplatformed. Um, there was a renewed effort to, to shut down and push Q out of places like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. Parler is shut down. Do they coalesce around something else somewhere else? Does, is there a way that they go back to normal? Um, I, I We're in this stasis right now where there's a couple of things happening. And we're going to find out what happens after the 20th. So after the 6th, there were kind of two kinds of people who were in this in the extremist Trump world. One was, uh, we didn't do enough. Um, I can't believe we didn't kill all these people. We need to reorganize and do this again. Those are really extreme malicious style people who are now probably coordinating in private. But then there is this other group of QAnon people who are sort of booted off of uh, pro-Trump spaces because they were too religious about it. Um, they moved over to a completely different website called the Great Awakening. When I want to talk about it, it's it's a thing, and they, um, you know, it became clear to them it was just a religion all along. Um, and they they talk, they keep saying, "Oh, he has a plan. It's fine. He has a plan. Everything he does is part of the plan." So those people have become sort of religious about that. But the twentieth will kind of be a make or break moment for those people as well. However, in terms of communications now, these people since they moved off of Parlor because there's nowhere else to go, they believe that 
you know, Trump is t- desperately trying to communicate with us. He can't. Um, right now, throughout the country, there is a viral text message going around from QAnon supporters saying uh, the emergency broadcasting system is about to be shut off if you update your iPhone. So don't update your iPhone. Don't update your Android. And uh, don't no patching from now on. That's the only way the president can reach us personally. And it's being sent from friends and family who that, that was the last post they saw on Parler. And they are desperate to get the word out so they can still communicate with their friends. Do you think there is a way to deprive QAnon of enough oxygen that eventually it gets harder and harder to sort of spread this stuff around? You can always do it, right? You can't turn off the internet. You can't turn off cell phones. But without sort of central uh, meeting places online, that it, it becomes much harder to spread this stuff. And again, you and I have talked about the fact that, you know, a lot of this stuff spread on Instagram and it was, you know, lifestyle influencers. It wasn't people seeking out QAnon. Do you think with, without those sort of accelerants, it goes away or at least, or at least shrinks? I think it probably shrinks. Um, and I do think now after Wednesday, people with cousins or family members, whatever, who are pushing this stuff are now probably pretty nervous that where this could end. You know, you don't, you don't want your uncle on the lam from the cops because he's accidentally in the Capitol following the crowd. Right. You heard lots of stories saying, they, I, I knew they were going to the Capitol. I didn't think they were going to riot. Right. Exactly. Or get killed. In so Ashley it, this actually is, this, this is a very good uh, time to step in and, and, and talk to your family and friends. Like there's, you know, it's in the, uh, the cult deprogramming world is called exogenous shock where you're, you know, you are forced to take a step back from the moment. Um, sometimes it has to do with things totally separate of those conspiracy theories, like, you know, losing your job or something or having a baby. But um, in this case, the exogenous shock is, <laughs> is the pretty hard line on the news that you just saw and you kind of have to pick a side. So I, I guess that that is sort of a positive thing is that, you know, you can see the dangerous ends that came from this thing and reach out to those people. And I hope that it's going to be, you know, in polite society to put up with this stuff anymore is is probably not going to be true. You posted a clip of Alex Jones, who is a crazy slash cynical, uh, dangerous person, um, very upset with QAnon. Does it mean anything that Alex Jones, among other people, are saying, I, I'm, I'm out, you know, I'm out of QAnon, or I'm, I have no more patience for QAnon? Does that, it, will that be meaningful, or is that just sort of reinforce the sort of uh, isolation those folks have to begin with, feel to begin with? Yeah, so... Alex Jones specifically has had a weird, fraught relationship with QAnon for a long time, in part because I think he was being upstaged by them. <laughs> I, I know that sounds uh, sad, but it's true. It's kind of so a Godzilla he, Mothra thing. Yeah, exactly. Like, he was really in on it at the start, and, you know, he brought on people who were trying to decode Q messages at the start. And then he realized, like, whoa, this is out of hand. I can't control this. And I, I don't want to be, I don't want this guy to be my assignment editor for all the insane shit that I say. So, he kind of backed away from that over These time. These are my loonies. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't really help his case. Like, Alex has always been a Civil War guy. He's always been big on the militants, um, sep- uh, separatist stuff. Um, and QAnon is, is not uh, deeply into Civil War. QAnon believes that, you know, America is, has uh, been wrapped up in a, global conspiracy for a long time. And once you get rid of the people, that's it. That's over. And there's a plan that you can take care of. Um, They don't want a protracted argument between your neighbor. They want to eliminate the people at the top. Alex Jones wants a fight with your neighbor. Alex Jones is part part of the culture war. So like there there are a bunch, that's the thing is right now there's this factionalization going on. Like 
is this a religion to you? Is this uh, about dismantling the government? Is this just about Donald Trump? There's a lot of different stuff going on right now, and you kind of have to find your own Telegram channel. Uh, and that's how this is going. Man, this is, I, was, I, I just had a talk with Kevin Roos of the Times, and we ended on this very dark note. I'm trying to end not on a dark note here, but we're going to go there. Are we stuck with this as a permanent feature of American life for, for years to come? Um, does this, you know, even if Donald Trump recedes from public life for whatever reason, do, does do these people go somewhere else? Do they find another thing? Or do you think it's, I guess that's the question you're asking, is it, is it so tied to Trump that, that it, it's entirely dependent on him? Um, Peter, I'm going to give some hope. Uh, the people who did not take this seriously no longer have a leg to stand on. We are in a space where you now realize that this is a very dangerous thing. Um, we, we can't pretend anymore this, is, this isn't a very dangerous thing. Even the people who were saying that, that it wasn't are now just saying or having rhetorical debates about uh, if platforms should be regulated differently, right? They're, they're, they just change the conversation. Now there is a place to step in and say that this is a sickness in our country that needs to be addressed um, through education, um, through media literacy, through having earnest and honest conversations about this and developing strategies. Previously, I don't think w- there would be such an urgency to figure out how to deprogram QAnon people because it would seem so silly. And now it's an absolutely urgent part of what we need to do as Americans to get people back to believing that our neighbors and friends are our neighbors and friends and not part of the deep state or whatever it is. So um, that's my hope. This was a wake-up call for a lot of people. Um, I know they, you know, QAnon people call it, call it the Great Awakening, um, ironically, that everyone's going to wake up to what they think is true and think that everything they say that's completely bananas is right one day. But there may have been one in the inverse on Wednesday where people wake up and say, oh, my God, we have a serious educational mental illness and uh, just hopelessness problem in this country. And if we start addressing those three things one by one systematically, I think we can see the other side of this. I'm going to accept that as the best case scenario, the best good news you can give me. Um, Ben, thank you for your time. Um, I enjoy seeing you, but I hope not to see you for a while. Yeah, Let's, let's make this the last one. Let's see what we can do. Thanks, Ben. Thanks again to Kevin Roos for The Times and Ben Collins from NBC. Thanks again to our sponsors who let you hear this conversation for free. All you got to just listen to an ad. It's a good trade. Thanks to Joel Angelotti for producing and editing this show. We will be back next week. <laughs>